0: Welcome to a Sunday edition of the Weekend Sports Cars, brought to you by Cooper Tires, brought to you by the Justice Brothers, and brought to you by my English brother, the editor of daily That is Graham Goodwin. How are you, my dear dear friend?
1: Uh, well, for once, mate, it's not raining, and that's uh, been the case. Maybe it's because we just hit March, uh, but uh, wettest February on a record, I believe, here in the UK. And uh, that's not just because of one extra day that we normally would do, uh, but uh, yet blissfully. We've had a, a lovely day today. It's now dark. I'm actually sitting in my lovely home with my lovely DSC dog asleep on his couch behind me, uh, so he might spark up at some point. But uh, no, all good. An exciting couple of weeks with the end of the Asian Le Mans series, and then, of course, uh, almost directly into I think what we're going to start talking about to the top of the program, which is the 62 cars that will be will form up the grid for the Le Mans 24 Hours.
0: Hold on, you're saying that there's a grid for the 24 Hours of that? Was that Lemons Daytona Lemons?
1: No, it's all of those, all those things, all those words, uh, although not necessarily in that order. Le Mans but, uh, is that the one I see
0: spelled with a lowercase, one word, lowercase m, lemans? Is that is this uh,
1: what you're referring to? You know, not in my house. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but no, absolutely that. And um, I think, joking aside, an interesting list and an interesting set of choices, I'm sure others would use different words, particularly the ones that are either on the reserve list or not on the reserve list, but um, does, I think, show some indication of where the ACO's choices are going.
0: Well, we are going to kick off this show not with our usual sections of questions, that being ACO, Asian Le Mans Series, WEC, ELMS, or IMSA, or General or Fun, we are indeed going to start with this Le Mans Grid announcement. Had a number of folks ask Graham for us to do exactly that. So since we are a show of the people, where should we start in diving into this entry list? Because boy, it sure has some great stuff and it also has some head scratching stuff, which by all accounts is the exact same reaction we have every year.
1: <laughs> well, let's start with a couple of the less obvious headlines, if you like, not just the numbers, but as I say, some of those choices. Let's start by uh, celebrating the fact we've got a Garish 56 effort back um, with the La Filiere, uh, Frederick Sausset, uh, those who might remember Fred, the quadruple amputee, uh, the only Garage 56 entry to finish the race. And uh, since that time, with uh, Fred Sose in a Morgan p 2 car, he has been gathering um, a squad of mobility um, impaired drivers together. And those three guys that have done a season or so of racing in smaller prototypes, uh, adapted LMP 3 Ligier, will be taking to the Le Mans 24 Hours. Um, in an adapted Orica 07 LMP2. We will be seeing that car, by the way, um, before Le Mans, and I don't think it would take a genius to to uh, realise that that's likely to be in the early season um, EMS races. Not yet announced, but I'm sure that will be the case. Um, particularly pleased to see on um, that list of three names is Takoma Aoki. Now, uh, that may or may not be a name that's familiar to Uh, Twisk listeners but uh, Takuma was well two things in the uh, relatively recent past he was a podium finishing MotoGP rider before a career-ending accident left him wheelchair bound Um, but since then I've known him as a class-winning GT racer in the Asia Le Mans series just two or three seasons ago Um, spectacular personality lovely guy and um, you know, it's going to be good to see that effort bringing, again, the rise and rise of disability sports uh, back to the Le Mans 24 Hours. So I'm particularly pleased with that one. I realise that is one fewer um, entry that's available for full season uh, elsewhere. But I guess I'm interested in what you've got to say about the other theme Diversity theme, if you like, there, which is we have not one, not two, but we believe three all female crews named for the Le Mans 24 Hours. MP, and whilst one of those was not necessarily a surprise, the second probably not a surprise either. But Gear Racing on the I list. I know. Now, I mean, okay, we're not going to see Cat Leg in that car uh, because she's in the uh, the Richard Mill Racing. Uh, Erica, but we've got Christina Nilsen. Um, but we are, I think, going to see um, some additional names. Uh, that, actually, I think it's a darn good thing. You know, two cars in the G, in GT class, one car in um, an MP2, and all of a sudden we're going to get uh, three doses of girl power. And I think that that right now is a very good message to be pushing. Not just can we have the Formula W with the standalone you know, female-on-female female action, uh, he said, with his tongue not quite. Hey, hey hey. hey, hey. But um, the girls actually do what we've seen them doing in the LMS, what we've seen them doing in IMSA, and going head-to-head with the guys in open competition. And I like that actually quite a lot.
0: What I was struck with, Graham, in looking at the entry list here was all of the Führer raised last year, with Jackie Heinricher's entry, uh, with Michael Shank, with that not being accepted. Kessel Racing obviously earned an auto invite, not with the women who they ultimately tabbed to be in that car for Le Mans, but Kessel earned the auto invite, chose to place women in that car. That was fantastic, but it was also a rather bizarre approach taken by the ACO. This thing of, see, look, we have women. We're holding this up. See, we're doing good things. No, not uh, not really. This was not something that was presented to you by, say, an independent team with no automatic invite that you then upheld. So I think the closing the door on what would have been the most talented uh, all-female entry last year, the stink that was raised from it, the pointing out by many folks that it was just a very narrow, uh, narrow-minded, uh, patriarchal approach. See, we did a thing, right? We we ticked the token box. I think that, Graham, is how I would like to believe the decisions, uh, what influenced the decisions made this year of, oh, maybe tokenism isn't the way to do things. Maybe if there are quality women who want to be in the race and teams that want to field them, we should not just think of this as, ah, we got one, we're good enough, but aha, more women, more talented women, that's going to enrich the entire event. So I'm assuming things here, having not spoken with Monsieur Fion and others about the decision-making progress process but it does stand out as a progress-minded thing, at least in their thought process. So I hope that's the case. My glass-half-full American-slash-Californian just absolutely refuses to believe otherwise.
1: Um, I, I, I hope it's a, a completely altruistic a response to it. I am um, interested to see if we're going to get joining... Christina Nielsen in the gear racing Ferrari because of course it's a Ferrari and a Lamborghini uh, because uh, Catleg and Titania Calderon um, are otherwise engaged in that race so is this an opportunity to see even further additional female talent will we maybe see someone like Jamie Chadwick uh, getting a bit of a run will be one or two of the uh, North American talents that we've seen emerging um, be given the call it's That, to me, is a standout theme. Um, it's not clearly about winning the race overall, but it's a standout theme that I think is of particular interest. That's that one. Beyond that, there were some other messages delivered, um, but certainly for others will be seen as a negative. Um, we've got, for the second time since the Gibson Formula, all four chassis um, available to LMP 2 teams, are going to be represented, always presuming RitWare racing do turn up uh, with their Riley and don't opt to switch. Um, it is a grid dominated by the Orica chassis in a way that uh, we've not seen LMP2 dominated by one make before. But the other key theme from EMP is that there are two teams um, that have opted to switch from ELMS to IMSA because of the way in which the bronze driver rules have been redone, uh, those being Dragonspeed and RLR M-Sports, and neither are given a full-season entry for those crews. Dragonspeed are on the list, but with their ELMS crew, uh, which does not feature Enric Edmond, of course, um, who until recently was an LMP1 WEC entrant, as well as an ELMS entrant. They've gone IMSA with that effort and have been very clear as to why. Uh, John Ferrano's efforts has left EMS for IMSA, um, although he had a a kind of half season at Asia Le Mans series as well. Um, But neither of those cars at the moment feature on the overall list. Any thoughts on that one?
0: Yeah, this is an area that I just, this is where we spend most of the time scratching our heads, hoping that intelligent thoughts leap forth. If we look at the dragon speed decision i can understand that from a hey you've gone from being fully committed to us to not fully committed to us with everything that you do whether it's elms WEC, etc hey you're now running an imsa uh under with one car uh understand that you're splitting your interest i do No, it's known, I believe, that Henrik Hedman is the financial engine behind uh, a lot of what Dragon Speed happens to do. So while I would, I don't know, Graham, if they can decide to alter the lineup from the one car that's been accepted to roll Henrik into that, uh, I'm not sure exactly how that might play out in terms of approval from the ACO, but this just struck me as a Huh. Uh, what does this have any deeper message to it? You're no longer fully committed to us, therefore, we'll grant the one that you're playing with over here. But uh, maybe we don't the other. That stood out for sure. Uh, Spirit of race. Um, that stood out to me as well on the uh, reserve. It's a couple that maybe didn't completely shock me uh in terms of not getting an, a nod i think the one well the two that jump out the high class racing and the entry uh at least tab with the end magnus in hmm again i know this is the the annual sophie's choice which child do you do you keep which one do you let go um just knowing the affinity that is held for yen and uh that the high class operation here uh, I believe is held in high regard that's one that I thought might have gotten through what are your thoughts on those before we get to maybe the the biggest question of the reserves that's been posed to us as well on the good old social media that being bycall so before we get to bycall share some thoughts yeah. on uh, on well, the dragon speed the the high class maybe the High Dragon Speed class entry. We'll we'll jam those together.
1: Dragon class. Um, Well, first and foremost, uh, Spirit of Race for Duncan Cameron entry. uh, Worth mentioning, of course, that car could have gone to Le Mans last year, but by the time the car had been elevated from the reserve list to the full entry, there had been further family plans or other family plans made by the Cameron clan. So it might just be that the ACR are delivering a bit of a message there to say well, yeah, not so clever now yeah. really, but, uh, but hey, you know um, I think there's every chance we'll see the 55 car in the full race because um, I think there's every chance we might see a bit of slippage here. As for The high-class racing thing, look, that's a team that pushed very hard with the Danish-themed, the Danish invasion theme, the full Danish crew, the full Danish liveried car, and of course Jan Magnus and the promise potentially in the future of Jan and Kevin to drive together. They will be sorely disappointed about that. Um, They will be correctly disappointed about that. Um, But I think the reality is that their competitiveness in the ELMS has not been where they would hope it would be. Uh, I think what they're trying to do is to recover ground there. I think what they're playing here is a marker for not just now, but for the future, a team that wants to build. Um, and it would be interesting to hear what background conversations your back and his team managers uh, are actually having with the ACO, not just about LMP2, but about LMDH moving forward. There's ambitions all over the place right now. That is absolutely a team. With a customer base and a client base that has the opportunity, the ability, I think, uh, to move forward uh, beyond LMP2 in the coming years. And that will be something that if the ACO is smart, they'll realize is an opportunity for them too.
0: What about our friends at uh, uh And I, I use friends as an air quote, not that we dislike them, but uh, uh, we I don't think, super know them the I, way anybody I think the, would hope to.
1: I think the answer there is that to me it's a no-brainer. On the one side, it gives you another car in the LMP1 class, which, by the way, is a record. Uh, sorry, an, a record equaling low. Last time we had six cars in LMP1 was 2017, final year for Porsche. And that was two Porsches, three Toyotas and the single by Collis, the only um, uh, privateer P1 car that year. And it didn't last long either. I think, you know, what we've got from Colin, Collis and co is the promise of things to come. They didn't enter a car anywhere for the past season. They have spent their time, we believe, developing a hypercar program, which is due to be revealed at Le Mans this year. And I think the message here from the ACO is, look, if we can find space, if this starts to fall to pieces a little, there's an opportunity there for you. But we're certainly not putting you in front of those teams that have actually said we will commit to a full season. You know, you've got to go a long way down that list. Um, I think to iron links uh, on the reserve list, which are there at number seven to find a team that have not got representation on the full list um, that uh, are are actually committed to a full season for the coming year. So I think Baikolis are effectively being told, here you go, We get it, we understand your plans are to enter the WEC with a hypercar and we're very pleased about that, but you don't get a buy from the fact that you've not yet committed to anything. Um, It's got to be said, that car, because it is the car we've seen before with the Gibson engine, um, had not made significant strides, had it, uh, over its uh, rather staccato career. One or two good performances. I seem to recall there was a good race at Spa where they got a fifth overall and, and ran completely cleanly. But generally speaking, I'm afraid they had a reputation for rather too long for being rather combustible. Um, and I think they have things to prove, let's put it that way. I think the ACO will be keeping an eye on that. They're certainly not um, you know, pinning their future hopes for their top class on by Collis. And I think Colin Collis is getting a bit of, me- bit, bit of a message that jam tomorrow is all very well. But let's let's see what you're holding. Let's see what you've got in your hand.
0: I received that in the same exact way. We appreciate you being here in the past. You're not here now. And during the period you've been here recently, maybe dating back to, I don't know, when you had the Audi R10s, um... There hasn't been much to offer. And so I like this. I also think it might have been the easiest decision for a team to reject and place among the reserves. Graham, for this exact reason, we have eight L and P one entry. I'm sorry. Uh, we have six L and P one entries. It's not a lot. Will seven make a difference? No. Will the slowest, least competitive, as you said, most combustible entry do anything other than guarantee we have a safety car period at some point? No. You want to continue to play? Build something and show up like you said you were going to do, and we look forward to seeing you in the future, but prove to us you are real. Just like, frankly, brother, we've been waiting for them to... Prove this hypercar. They said they're building is real. So I think that one, uh, that one is pretty darn easy. Let's look at some of the surprises before we move on to our regular Q and A format. The surprises within the entry list. One of them, even I didn't know about, and he's supposedly a good friend, Sebastian Bourdais. Olivier <laughs> Pla. <Plot, laughs> right. Uh, I've heard. Not saying it's factual. I've heard, I don't even know if there's contracts in place. But um, share some thoughts about the Risi Competizione GTE Pro Ferrari with, again, some names attached to it that might not have been expected. And then also, maybe Graham, share for folks who aren't aware how this somewhat interesting method of revealing the entries might not necessarily mean that. The names associated with some of these entries are fully done and dusted and signed and ready to go. That that has to be an awkward thing for teams, too, who are asked to provide some names, but knowing that there's hope those things get done. But maybe they aren't exactly finished before the announcement in some cases.
1: No, absolutely right. And uh, as far as the rizzi Competizione uh, uh, effort is concerned, my guess is it's going to be a very similar effort that we saw last year. You remember the blue colour scheme, the link in with Ferrari France, and um, uh, th- this time looks like potentially an all-, all French driver lineup and a driver lineup of high quality. If Seb Baudet turns up with Olivier Pla and um, and potentially Jules Gounon as well. Um, it's, it's not unusual to see changes in the driver line up. Let's put it this way. I, I can remember very few occasions turning up to scrutineering, indeed, the weekend before the Le Mans 24 hours and not finding at least some kind of change in the air. Um, so, yeah, there'd be a number of names that are on that list that may or may not eventually be uh, turning up. And in no small part... That's because we've actually got quite an extraordinary number of first-time teams this year. I think it's 10 teams have never uh, raced at the Mans 24 hours before, and that, that's it's around 10. If you count Panis Racing as being, you know, uh, exactly the same as Panis Bartes were, But it's, you know, so the likes of, for instance, Colin Noble, named against Nielsen Racing's uh, Orica in LMP2. That uh, effort earned with an automatic invitation uh, that came courtesy of Colin's uh, Asia Le Mans Series LMP3 win with uh, Tony Wells. The reality at the moment is deal not done for Nielsen Racing. Uh, They're talking to a range of people. They'd love to have Colin in the car but there's things that have got to happen first. You have to nominate at least one driver. The reality is now that now the commercial bagatelle really starts to jangle. Uh, now we get to the stage where the phones will start ringing, uh, particularly those teams that have not got full driver squads against, listed against them at the moment, and particularly in LMP2 and in GTE Am. And I've already had multiple calls from drivers and teams uh, to see whether or not um, you know i know of people that have got the required combination of talent and budget because make no mistake this is a massive commercial a massive chunk of the commercial case for those professional race teams with pro am lineups and it's one of the reasons why you don't necessarily see the full season lineups turning up for these teams at the mon because when it comes down to it cash cash counts
0: here Mm. How about our man Shane Van Gisbergen Hmm. making his Le Mans debut in LMP2? And Shane, size-wise, not the smallest human being by any stretch. (laughs) So uh, I'll just say this. I wouldn't start the race with him because I can't guarantee you're going to be able to pull him out. (laughs) <laughs> well, he, he's already raced an
1: LMP2. His first prototype um, effort came at the bend. Yep. Uh, and again in the Le Mans series. I think that's a little bit of tactics from the Eurasia squad. Um, they, uh, their option was to put Daniel Gaunt or Nibuya Yamanaka, their gentleman driver, uh, on the list. But if you were looking to attract the attention of the ACO and you had the option of putting Shane Van Giesbergen there, Um, You would, wouldn't you? Because that's a name that um, is to be conjured with. Absolute star, uh, was mighty in an LMP2, had never sat in effectively a downforce car before like that before. And I think was top of the timing within 20 minutes of the start of the first timed practice session against... You know, the likes of Ben Barnico, Harry Tinkler, Roman Rusinov, you know, these are not guys who are messing about. So Shane, I think, could be a very interesting prospect indeed at the Le Mans 24 Hours. His Kiwi teammate, by the way, Daniel Gaunt, has been pretty impressive as well in Asia uh, this year. Napoli Yamanaka needs a lot more time in the car uh, to be anywhere close to being competitive. But um, great to see his name there. I hope this gives him the taste to do more he was a massively popular addition to the Eurasia squad uh, with the um, New Zealand racing colours it's an all black colour with the uh, New Zealand fern uh, on the wing Um, I hope it gives him the, the, uh, the taste to do a bit more if supercar 's calendar permits, and that 's been an issue, as you 'll well know, for a number of big names, not least Craig Lowndes in the past, uh, being rather restricted in his opportunity to get on a plane and travel um, you know let 's wait uh, uh, and see whether or not there's an opportunity to do more than just Le on. We do know by the way that Eurasia are um, asking for an entry for the Spa WC race as well as a lead-up for that. So hopefully we get the opportunity to see the big man um, strutting his stuff at Ligier around the amazing Spa-Francorchamps circuit before we see him in June at Le Mans.
0: And we don't want to just let the first instance of hashtag let's wait and see fly. So uh, <laughs> good, good use there, my man. What else stands out from this entry list that might be interesting to parse before we get rolling on Q&A?
1: Well, the ma- the master of um, uh, gaming, if you like, the, uh, the Le Mans 24-Hours list is a of AF Corsa so through the variety of teams uh, that he represents, not just, of course, in GTE Pro, but GTE Am as well. And looking down the GTM Am, uh, list we've got one, two, three, four, five, at least five, six, six cars in GTM that will be operated by um, by the A of Corsa uh, outfit, and the possibility of more depending on who's going to be looking after the Gear Racing, for instance. But my guess is that either Kessel uh, or another might well have uh, their hands on that one. Uh, the one that I'm kind of uh, as attracted by is Lucich Racing. So, Lucich Racing in the hunt for two titles in Europe last year, Swiss flagged but uh, US owned. And that team, I know, has ceased operations. Um, I think uh, it's uh, personal issues and not of the financial nature, of the uh, health nature for the team owner have meant that that program has come to an end but pretty clearly amata ferrari has hung on in there with that license has cashed that one in uh, very literally and they will retain an entry at le mans 24 hours despite the fact the team notionally doesn't exist anymore so um and also by the way with of course the first reserve as well so uh amata ferrari i think has done a darn good job um you've got a keep impressing your customers to keep coming back every year. So I uh, don't see this as a negative, um, but pretty clearly he's done a very, very good job in making sure that his customers get to be there. Beyond that, um, big entry in LMP2, 24 cars, as big as we've seen uh, in the new era of LMP2, and that in no small part, of course, is uh, because of the, the kind of the contraction of LMP1. Some interesting names on there. Adrian Tombe, I think, is an interesting name there. That's uh, the name on the Euro International squad with a Ligier uh, LMP2 car. Uh, Euro International, by the way, uh, back at the Le Mans 24 Hours for the first time since 1995 when they fielded. Uh, a Ferrari 333 SP. I think that might be the first Ferrari 333 SP we saw at Le Mans in 1995. It didn't go very far, unfortunately. Blew the engine early on. Uh, but uh, an interesting aside there, perhaps, is one of the one of the drivers in that car was René Arnoux. René Arnoux shared the Ferrari F1 team in the mid-80s with one Patrick Tombay And here we are um, some little time later. And uh, Patrick's son, Adrian, looks like he's going to be aboard the car with Enzo's grand nephew, Antonio Ferrari, as the team manager.
0: Oh, interesting! We should also—we would be remiss if we did not take a moment, take a knee, pour out a forty, say congratulations on an amazing career to Johnny Molum who has retired. Uh, fantastic, <laughs> fantastic driver from your lovely aisle. Yep. Oh, and he's back. Okay, now he's oh, back again. again. Red River Sport, yep. the number 62 Ferrari 4. <laughs> 88 GTE Evo. Yes, Johnny Mullum, <laughs> unretired yet again. Uh, you realize this is his 107th Le Mans 24 hours. Yes, we're actually celebrating, although it's only been run 86 times or whatever the number is. Uh, yes, uh, 107th participation in the 24 hours of Le Mans by Johnny Mollum also the 129th retirement non-retirement uh so good on him there's no one I love driving not driving a car than good old Johnny (laughs) Mollum all right I think we've assassinated his uh his name enough um shall we shall well actually before we go so the Garage 56. Yeah. Love the idea of Garage 56. Always have. It's worked about half the time uh since its formation. That's great. I completely loved Frederick Sose's first effort this being in an open cockpit car. Uh now with all cars being closed, I'm interested to see how this new garage 56 program works with him thoughts on just somewhat warming over the same air quote innovation since it's listed as the innovative car thoughts on this going down the same territory, different car, but same territory ter- territory we've been with those who have some form of physical challenge to overcome. Uh, doing this same exact thing again.
1: Well, yes and no. Uh, the, the 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 level of disability, level of uh, impairment, is different for these three guys. Which also means, by the way, there shouldn't be as big an issue as there was for Fred in terms of exiting the car. We had that's extraordinary. Um, you know, at, at times, fairly Heath Robinson kit to get him in and out of the car. But the difference, of course, is all three of these guys are significantly mobility impaired, which certainly wasn't the case for the two drivers that shared the drive with, um, with Fred last time.
0: Graham, you are the official selector of our categories. You tell us when and where we go. Where shall we go, knowing that we have just recently done a hypercar special I don't know. Does that lean us towards IMSA or do we go straight into Weckasm Elms Echo? Uh,
1: I think we're going to go with uh, IMSA. Ooh. And we're going to go with, uh, oddly enough, despite the fact I was trying to avoid WECASM's uh, Echo after just doing a full show on Hypercar, George Allegretta asks, what do you think, MP, uh, about the prospects of uh, IMSA approving the Hypercars to join the LMDH cars Uh, for Emsa's endurance races next season.
0: George, I think it absolutely must happen. That's the thing that just strikes me as a bit odd right now, though, because we have this belief that it will take place, but I'm still waiting for the exact yes. Come on, bring your hypercar, let's play, let's party. Uh, Continuing to wait on that. And it seems a little bit weird that we don't, at least unless I am misremembering, I'm not sure I recall a clear thumbs up that that is indeed what will be allowed to happen here in IMSA. We have French sanctioning bodies, American sanctioning bodies saying convergence. Great. We have, hey, this LMDH formula, you can bring it over here. At Le Mans, we would think. The FIA's World Motorsports Council will approve those cars being able to play in the WEC. What I hear, Graham, and I'm not saying it's accurate, but what I've been hearing is there could be some possible vagaries in minimum vehicle manufacturing requirements between the sanctioning bodies. There could be a thing where... IMSA wants you to be at a certain minimum annual production for your road-based car to be eligible in what will be DPI 2.0, LMDH, and possibly hypercar as well. And I don't know if that's accurate, but I've heard suggestion of such a thing. And if that's the case, that would seem like a massive overreach to me. Mm. That would seem like a... But well, wait a minute, didn't we all just take the stage and shake hands and hold hands and sing songs together and just uh, bless this holy union? But are we now, after we being a Mary after getting the green light to finally bring this upcoming prototype formula to Le Mans, the thing we've been lacking for a number of years now, are we now going to put some sort of restrictions in place for... Hypercars to come over here? I don't know if that's accurate. I've just heard it to the point that makes me think that there could still be some conversations that need to take place to get this clarified. And I would hope that wouldn't be the case, if it's true. Uh,
1: there's one other quick thing, by the way, which, before I forget it, I meant to mention this at the top of the show, and it's a question to which I don't yet have the answer. The um, You'll recall, MP, that we've been told we will receive more details at Sebring of the technical... Uh, regulations and the the general kind of framework for this and that uh, is because uh, the whole principle of this uh, convergence is being discussed by the FI World Motorsport Council on the 6th of March later this week. Here's a slight problem that uh, 6th of March meeting was supposed to be commensurate with the Geneva Motor Show which has been cancelled because of the ongoing outbreak of the COVID-19 uh, virus. So, it was also, by the way, meant to see a pretty unique gathering of the organisers of all the FI championships. Uh, so, not sure at the moment what they're going to do about uh, a revised arrangement for that meeting, but let's hope that does not impact on the ability of the um, the powers that be to come to some conclusions and to give us a little bit more information when we all get down to Sebring at the end of this month.
0: Yeah. Where shall we go next for questions? Let's go to uh,
1: Chocophile. What do you think in the spirits of convergence about combined practice sessions this year or next at Super Sebring? Are the LMP1s too fast? GTDs too slow? Tire compounds too different? Differences in BOPness? A bridge (laughs) too far? Now, this comes on the back of conversation a couple of shows ago as to whether or not you could do either a, a different sort of doubleheader or even some kind of combined race um, to celebrate uh, convergence in the sort of way that um, the Grand Am and LMS fields came together on the same weekend to celebrate the then-coming arrangement uh, became the Tudor United Sports Car Championship. But uh, the, the prospect of a joint practice session, that's, that's got some appeal.
0: Yeah, I would just throw out that we have a situation where I'd love to see it, but granted, what are we talking about, 60-plus cars, potentially? I I think that might be a case where uh, that might stress the comfort level of IMSA and the WEC. Not saying that that number of cars has not or could not be Looked after, but for hashtag me personally, would just say that we've seen what a LMP1 car can do, both hybrid non hybrid at Sebring. We've seen the lap time disparity between that and the DPIs. We know what LMP2s can do around there. Uh, so throwing them together, to me, I mean, really, you could just look at the lap times from the session. Uh, with the WC, the one that follows soon after with IMSA and say, all right, there you go. So that, I don't know if that holds any appeal. Um, I mean, really the big question is going to be what will a hypercar and an LMDH do on track? So that's still a ways away. That is not something we would see until Sebring 2022. That's the thing I'd love to see at that point. We are still waiting to see, hashtag let's wait and see on what Mm -hmm. comes out on the class and what they decide for convergence and will we still have air quote super sebring with separate championships being run on the same weekend or will there be super sanctioning body sebring where it's just one race with 60-ish cars and again we don't know what they're planning but i can't wait to find out
1: It's an exciting time. I mean, there are all sorts of options and possibilities here, and some of them might help me to, everybody's going to taste, but uh, it is nice to have something in the background that is still emerging, isn't it? That I think there should be a message here as well. I cannot recall an announcement in the last maybe five years that received so much positivity as this, and that has to be encouraging for all the sanctioning bodies involved, and for that matter, all the major sanctioning bodies that weren't involved, that in a time where it really is supremely difficult to get traction to move forward, that collaboration and cooperation produces that level of positivity. I think that's got to be a good message and something we should be kind of embracing moving forward. Let's move on. A uh, completely different tone of question here. George Stakos. Says, Did we ever find out the root cause of the Yungos crash at Mossport last summer? This would be the um, shunt for their uh, DPI Cadillac MP.
0: Yes, for our young Brazilian friend, victorious Franzoni, Victor Franzoni. Yeah, hit a bump, was offline, hit a bump, uh, one that drivers tend to try and avoid. Victor being new to the circuit, I believe, but certainly very inexperienced in uh, DPI, simply made a mistake. And so speaking with Ricardo Juncos a couple of days ago, uh, really said that that crash set them on the path that they've uh, been on and led them to a place where not only are they out of IMSA and trying to sell that Cadillac with a brand new tub of all places on racingjunk.com <laughs> for about five hundred ish thousand dollars US. Uh, they're suffering pretty heavily overall. They tried to expand and extend themselves into a lot of different series. IMSA IndyCar, Indy Lights, Indy Pro two thousand. They are Currently suffering, where they have two Pro 2000 entries for the year. Nothing in Indy Lights, despite winning six races and finishing second in the uh, title run last year. And currently nothing for IndyCar. Uh, And certainly nothing in IMSA, having now been a one-and-done team. So, yeah. Interesting, though, just to hear Ricardo point to that crash as being a domino that fell at the time that he did not know would actually put them in such financial peril that it would cause significant business-wide problems that they're continuing to experience to this day.
1: Let's try another one. This time it's Edgar Sanchez Brambilla. How is the pit lane space shared between the WeatherTech teams and the support series that are pit stops such as the Michelin Pilot Challenge? Do they politely squeeze in next to the WeatherTech teams, or do they borrow and share equipment? The that WeatherTech teams get the priority for the pit space.
0: We have an interesting scenario where, especially on the big weekends, where pit space tends to be a wee bit limited We do have situations where the Michelin Pilot Challenge teams do squeeze in, even on the small weekends. Frankly, it's a bit of a norm to wander out and see folks in very different branded clothing (laughs) with sponsors that are wholly unrelated to the Acura DPI or the Turner BMW or whatever it might be. It is the norm for those teams to use the major Pit box setup, sitting on timing stands, etc., uh, as implemented for the full event by the WeatherTech teams. And to the best of their ability, you'll also see them try and cram their pit cart in. Those tend not to be as large or as big of a production, keeping in mind that those carry the tires that they need, uh, definitely the, uh, ox- the oxygen bottles, the air bottles. Uh, to power wheel guns and whatnot. So they do essentially slot in their own infrastructure, in most cases behind, beside, through, over, you name it, uh, to try and do their best to use their stuff while working in, frankly, someone else's house. So what's interesting or odd is you get a little bit of aggro stuff at times, Graham, where this is a little bit like very short half hour, 45 minute, I guess, during the race. It's longer, but kind of an Airbnb situation where you go, hey, a-hole, clean up your cups and drinks and your candy wrappers or whatever it is that you ate or drank or consumed while in here, or hey, the tear-offs from the winch, like, I realize we got to share this, but We're not your freaking maids. So you do get a little bit of that, although most teams are super well behaved. But that is an an absolute topic that you hear about uh, from the WeatherTech teams from time to time, where it's like, dude, (laughs) just spend a minute to clean up before you leave, because you really don't want us having to do that for you. Because trust me, the narrow path for you to slide your cart through, to work through, you know, it's not too hard for us to put some really heavy, hard-to-move objects in that place. So, yeah, uh, there's definitely a little bit of uh, trying to be good neighbors, um, for sure. Works most of the time, not always.
1: Let's finish off, IMSA, with a question from James Counter, who says, what's the general sentiment on John Doonan as IMSA president? Now he's had a couple of months in the role. Wayne Taylor sounded very positive about conversations that have been had in these recent Inside the Sports Car Paddock
0: interview. Yeah. Everything I've heard so far has been very positive. I keep waiting to hear the big negative, (laughs) maybe the, the other way of answering this. I keep waiting to hear some sort of man, this guy is the worst this guy is the this the that um i'm not exactly sure that's going to be heard yet but there is no doubt going to be at least you know a uh some sort of complaints coming in would just couch that by saying i don't know if that many big decisions that neg- that could negatively affect the paddock have been made yet so you know i would just say that that's that's something to keep in mind here guy's mm-hmm. been on the job 2 3 months uh helping to get convergence across the finish line a really big thing that has led to a you know really impressive Response by a lot of team owners his willingness and desire to not be the guy up in the ivory tower that has struck an immediate chord that we can and should acknowledge um here's something i learned and i just love and love hearing these little stories and this is a no joke real thing that happened for those who follow nascar or give a fart about it they had their recent Daytona five hundred race at Daytona International Speedway. It was rained out. So everyone, after I guess, multiple attempts to get some laps, and they got in a nominal amount of laps on the, the big Sunday Daytona five hundred. Weather was clearing. They're gonna be able to run it on on Monday. So postponed it. Well, what does that mean? Well it means that Unexpectedly you're having to turn off the lights, come back tomorrow, do it all over again. From the team side, Graham, pretty straightforward. Put the car in the trailer, put it in the garage, whatever. Again, team side, pretty easy. From a facility standpoint, though, well <laughs> you just had whatever the number hundred plus thousand, two hundred thousand people, I don't know what the number was, but grandstands packed. You had all those people leave unexpectedly. And now they need to come back and enjoy. Well, when they left, just like we spoke about the uh, shared pit boxes, you get your drink cups and your popcorn boxes and your hot dog wrappers and all that that, unfortunately, most people don't practice good habits of throwing away their trash in such situations. All this stuff left in the grandstands that needs to be cleaned up so when folks come back. They're not stomping on wet, soggy, icky, disgusting stuff and then watch the race. I was told John Doonan took part in the cleanup crew going through the grandstands along with all of the Daytona International Speedway staff to hurriedly prepare the race. uh, I'm sorry, prepare the uh, the grandstands for the race to resume and heard that, yes, and I'm not talking a five-minute stint, but a long stint to help try and prepare Daytona to hold its biggest race of the year after a rain delay. Uh, just I'll throw that out as maybe the answer that I think is going to guide us and govern this topic. Of course, he is going to make decisions that will piss people off in a paddock filled with You know, 50 team owners, 75 team owners across all the various, it could be more, all the various classes. 100% guarantee he's going to make some enemies piss people off. The fact that the guy's kind of underpinnings as a human being is to go and help and try and make things better and be very selfless about it, which is a bit of a change. I think that is what makes me believe he's going to succeed. And is going to have more allies within the paddock than enemies. And as jump Rocky tries to jump onto the desk here and knocks my DVD of the Sylvester Stallone masterpiece Driven onto the oh. ground, um, that's my that's guiding, that's my, irreplaceable. Yeah, I mean, it's right. Come on, Rock. What are you doing, buddy? Uh, that's my kind of guiding principle here. If your head of imps is doing that, I must believe that. Uh, that 's going to help keep most people in a fairly happy place because people who do things like that think like that tend to be rooted in quality motivations so i
1: i, I, I entirely agree with you great answer to that question m um, p We move on, and I think it 's your t- turn to serve um question is my way this time it's weck aslams elms ACO, or our rather long um acronym for the world of aco rules racing uh what we got this week mp
0: we're gonna start off with our man justin at j underscore truck underscore 71 who says i'd like to hear both graham and marshall's opinion on the lmp1 success handicap system we've seen this year He said, Weck needed to do something for LMP1, but hashtag me personally, I don't think the system makes the races any less predictable. Now, that's an interesting one, because Mm. if you followed how free practice one started at the most recent round at Circuit of the Americas to how the race finished on the LMP1 subject, uh predictable is exactly what i saw but maybe i'm not seeing something what do you think graham
1: um it's a blunt instrument isn't it uh, without a shadow of a doubt look, look i'll start by saying uh, equivalence of technology which is what we had before uh, the way in which that was implemented was a joke to be honest with you and to watch the teams and to talk to the teams that were promised an awful lot that then evaporated with not just a equi- uh, lack of equivalence, but a lack of equivalence underpinned by several other provisos that meant there was not a hope in hell that um, they could actually ever be competitive with the totas. Uh, a highly political move. Um, that system was fatally flawed. This system rather switches it doesn't it pushes it back in the other direction the one thing i would say about the success handicap as i open the door because there's a husky that wants to come in hello husky um the one thing i would say about this is it does still require uh the non-hybrid teams the privateer teams uh benefactors of of that success handicap pretty obviously still to be fast and reliable there isn't as much of an edge as the toes had in the other direction. So, um, is it perfect? No, it's not, not by any means. Uh, and it particularly wasn't perfect because, of course, we didn't have the Janetta's at uh, Cota. Um, what I think we need to see is more competition at the front of the field, and the flaw in Success Handicap was exacerbated because we've not got the depth. If we had the depth, would it be more entertaining? Probably. Uh, But I don't think we're going to know that unless and until we see three um, non-hybrid cars being competitive, uh, outpacing the Totas, and then we get into what we've seen from the Gennettas, but not necessarily from the Rebellion this year, which is whether or not reliability comes into it.
0: Yeah, I just, I have never cared for the Success ballast formula because it is eminently predictable. It is something that requires poor results to be rectified. So rather than really try and take bigger, better swings at BOP or EOT, just saying, well, if you win, you're going to get heavier. And if you win more, you're going to get heavier we're going to get to a point to where you can no longer win and then on that arc of good to bad you'll eventually come back to good having seen it in a number of formulas i guess the first one i recall being british touring car it just struck me as a defeatist approach hey you're really quick well (laughs) guess what sucker (laughs) that was dumb uh if you want to win a championship you try to be second or third a lot not necessarily win mm-hmm. realize we can make the same accusation about bop right um boy you you don't ever want to do enough to really get noticed this just seems as you mentioned as you open with to be a blunt instrument oh you won well now you get to go slower period we're not going to try and balance or dial you back a little bit it's just boom you did well again. Well, boom, once more. And then we have a situation like Coda where seemingly there's nothing for the Toyotas to do. It was apparent from the first practice session. It was maintained through the end of the race and barring reliability issues for the faster cars, in this case, the rebellions. The outcome of the race was sealed from the very first practice session for those who like motor racing, the racing part of it, that might be a hard sell uh, for me in terms of a quality practice. Let's go to our pal. Stuart Hart says, let's look ahead to Sebring given recent setbacks. Is it now time for manufacturers and private teams to step forward and make good on their demands for convergence? The sports is its own worst enemy. And too often, lets golden opportunities slip away. Let's have some positivity. What do you think about that, Graham? We're not waiting. We're, not, we're announcing the rules at Sebring. And hey, we're announcing we're converging now, dang it. Let's go. <laughs>
1: um, I hope we do hear some positivity. I hope we hear, if not announcements, the more, uh, more move towards commitment um, from some of the manufacturers. What we got at Daytona, was a whole heck of a bunch of them basically dancing around their handbags, um, as we would say in UK disco parlance. Um, And I would hope that we've now had an opportunity since Daytona, and by the time we get to middle, late March, uh, for a number of those manufacturers to perhaps come forward with a bit more of a statement of intent. If this happens, then this is what we will do, sort of thing. My guess is that we will probably have to wait till June and the Le Mans 24 Hours for more commitments on this. But by then, we really do need to be seeing some, uh, because the times, the time um, constraints here are pretty darn tight, aren't they? So let's wait and see.
0: Oh, another, second. let's wait and see. I love it. This is great uh let's go to ryan terpstra he Says last week ended like a mercedes clk gtr at Le Mans. gg vanished into the woods <laughs> so should we uh should we actually we i should have thought to mention that up front so yes if you happen to listen to last week's episode uh we lost graham goodwin we got him back sent out a search party tell folks what happened though because i know you had work to do you had to get to session report and whatever. So getting back to finish the show didn't exactly happen, but uh, tell folks that you did not indeed get abducted. Oh, no, it was
1: a simple matter of the, the wifi fell over in the Burram press room. So uh, last week's show was recorded um, by me in the press room at Burram as we had, I think free practice one underway in the background. Um, but uh, unfortunately, as we suffered through uh, the whole of the weekend, uh, it was on, and then it was off. It was on, and then it was off. It's a bit like a lighthouse. Uh, so my apologies that uh, I think you lost me mid mid answer. Um, but uh, fingers crossed, it won't happen like that uh, back here in dear old Blighty.
0: And I think you were on your mobile phone as well. Your your headset was back in the hotel or something like that. And I know that we had another- no, no, I had
1: the headset. Oh, no, you no, did
0: no I went back got it oh i wasn't oh well then i was wrong because <laughs> wow well anyways we had a number of folks who sent in direct messages and whatnot and complained about all manner of audio quality so hopefully you are happier now um let's go to ryan's question a resubmit who says what if janetta and he loves spelling it gianetta uh what if janetta and ferrari collaborated on an lmp2 that could be sold to p2 people i like that p2 people and anyone who wants to use it as a base for an LMDH? What if?
1: Uh, what if? Well, I have to say, I've had exactly this conversation, and I mean precisely this conversation. Um, you know, you and I have been aware for quite some time that the basis on which uh, the uh, Ferrari empire might want to do LMDH would be based on their proposal that they're allowed to do their own chassis. I can't th- see there being any prospect, any realistic prospect that that should be allowed Um, but the opportunity is there to add a fifth manufacturer, that being Ginetta. They have the capability, they have the chassis technology, etc, etc. That could be the, um, the, uh, the chassis that is the basis for a Ferrari LMDH and it could be that the I guess the trade-off there is that that could be traded as an LMP2, not by Ferrari, but by Ginetta. So I've heard nothing to suggest that that's even an outside possibility, but is there common sense behind that? Well, for the prospect of Ferrari, who are asking for a particular thing that at the moment can't be provided, and for the prospect of Ginetta, who are currently locked out of the LMP2 marketplace, then that for me potentially solves two problems um i'd like to see a constructive solution um if not that one then let's see um let's see something else that comes close but you know ryan i don't think you're particularly off beam will we see it happen my guess is no we won't but it does have a degree of neat synergy about it
0: doesn't it hashtag degree of neat synergy i love (laughs) that right there all right, let's go to... All right, Justin. Our man Justin's back again. This one, I think, I'm going to make a note because I, I think this might be deserving of... Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone.
1: Christoph Boucher's Hammer Emporium.
0: A soapbox moment brought to you by Boucher's Hammer, Emporium. Justin says, as we get further into LMDH talks, thoughts on the sanctioning bodies requiring a deposit for manufacturers to join the discussions. If the manufacturers build the car, they get the money back. Of course, if they don't, they lose the money in hopes of OEMs not influencing regulations when they don't race in them. Uh, I think we're back on a topic about Aston Martin. So... Uh or Peugeot. Well, true. True. Or Toyota. True. I think in particular though, the Aston trying to they're knowing that they wrangled quite a bit on the motor side and oh, no, fair
1: enough. swayed yeah. the forward.
0: hypercar discussion very heavily because of oh, their yeah, specific needs. So I don't know. I this seems ripe for a soapbox moment.
1: I think let's, let's crack on. I mean, I mean yeah, um, add in McLaren, add in Ford, add in BMW, add in a whole range of organisations been involved in, uh, in discussions about prototype and GT regulations, but then not produced a car that was eligible. Uh, so I think the answer here is, again, that's a blunt instrument, but I quite like it. You know, I do quite like it. I quite like the... Uh, the option, but bear in mind, I, I mentioned Toyota, and by the way, Toyota that was an incorrect thing to do because they have engaged and they have produced the cars. But Toyota um, would tell you, they tell you even now, they were uh, in Hypercar because they want to be in the room for the next stage of regulations. Hypercar does have some advantages for them, it allows them to carry over their current technology. There might be a different sales and marketing led. Uh, opportunity for them, but the reality is they're far, far more interested in uh, what's coming forward in terms of zero emissions uh, in the future, but to, to they want to be in that room um, to be party to those negotiations about regulations so that they can push it in the direction that they'd like it to go. That's perfectly valid. Do you think, Graham, we,
0: we push this this edict to announcements instead of being involved in the conversation if you 're going to announce a program, you must file some sort of serious amount, not one hundred thousand dollars but i don 't know five million something to make if you 're going to announce it great that 's our formal that 's where you formally commit to us, and we need some sort of deposit
1: I think the answer here is we could be in a different world again again it 's not like you 're having to kind of dredge the swamp for you know a second or a third manufacturer i feel we could be in a world here where we could be talking about grazing double figures and if that's the case then you can afford to be a bit more ballsy about it and if actually what you've got in any group of people there's always going to be one or two that dominate the conversation of course there are um uh, and if that becomes too much of an issue to get constructive uh, ways going forward, if you've got you know, a towering voice whether or not that be a big name in terms of a Ferrari, whether or not that be a big name in terms of a Ford, big names for completely different reasons if what's going on is you're getting one voice dominating the conversation to the point where you can't get a consensus, then maybe the kind of thing that Justin's is suggesting here has some merits you can, you can enter that discussion you can be part of that discussion But you've got to commit and not quite sure how you'd achieve that uh, in a kind of contractual fashion. But it does have some appeal, I have to say. It'd have a lot more appeal if at Sebring we had four or five manufacturers turning around and saying we are directly engaging and intend to enter. Because at that point, what you've got is a kind of a cabal of committed entities that we would hope would embrace others coming and joining them. But as long as that discussion remains positive and constructive, um, it'll be interesting to see how things emerge in the coming weeks, won't it? It
0: will. Let's go to, where are we going to go? Jose Rodriguez Castro. Says, guys, weren't there any Ford GT customer cars racing? The car is still eligible, right? Says, hashtag me personally. It'd be cool to see it on track. Am I beating a dead horse here? Pony, I would say pony car, but uh, Mustang. Anyways, uh, I, we might have answered this recently, but uh, what can you share with us, my man?
1: Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, I believe that uh, more than one car has been sold. Whether or not we'll actually see those cars racing, I think would be uh, interesting. We've heard from Ben Keating that whilst he owns that car, I don't think he's got plans to race the car that raced, of course, at the modern one on track, of course, the wins livery car. Um, There's an interesting uh, social media um, post from Rob Kaufman recently. I don't know if you saw this one, MP, Mm-mm. but uh, but a number of very interesting cars out for what was described, described as a very private and very interesting test. Uh, but that included two racing four GTs, um, the 67 car, the red car, and one of the uh, still corporately liveried cars, um, I don't think that was anything other than uh, an owner's opportunity to get some track time. But are there possibilities? I think the reality is the next possibility comes um, in September of this year with the WEC. Unless we're going to see a couple of one-off entries for a car uh, within IMSA, WEC or the ELMS. And they don't look to be immediately viable. Uh, the, the clock is sort of ticking away from the prospects of seeing those cars back out and running again.
0: Hmm. Let's. Uh, where shall we go? We've, let's look at the clock. Uh, all right, We've giving ourselves about 20-ish more minutes here, uh, which actually is overtime because we actually said we were going to stop at the hour, but uh, we need to go a little bit farther here. And let's, let's
1: get into some of the, kind of the general and uh, fun ones. Yeah, I'm just going
0: to throw out quickly that, as we mention every week, if we don't get to your question and you really want it answered, please send it back in, and we will do our best. I know that we have a number here from Weck Aslam Elms Aiko, uh we're having to pass on for right now. So, again, don't hesitate there. So let me make the little marker because it's important so we know we're going to weck asm elms echo ourselves uh and transition into hegan and i'll throw at you right turn lover who says in group c we had plenty of customer cars with what happened to be commercial sponsors what needs to change in the sport so that sponsors find sports car racing sufficiently commercially appealing to finance race teams again you want to take uh, that a, one
1: I'll take it. I'm sure you've got something to add here as well, MP. Uh, I think there's two things to say. One is, I don't think for some of those uh, entities, it was quite as commercial as you think. Lots of the people involved in those teams, lots of Pro-Am efforts in Group C were indeed entities linked in with those drivers. I think the big difference nowadays is there's a whole lot of other places in sports car, and GT racing in particular, which has exploded in numbers in the last... A couple of decades where those sponsors or those entities or those drivers can actually go. The second part of this is the world of sponsorship and advertising has changed utterly and completely in the last 30 and 40 years it, is, it bears absolutely no relevance or recognition to where we were at the start of my career in communications and advertising to where we were in the early mid 80s And I think the reality now is that uh, those entities are finding other ways, particularly online ways, of spreading those messages.
0: I'll default to the really obvious answer, which is when I have seen sponsors take a very heavy and active place in sports car racing, those series, whatever they might be, tend to have been fairly popular. And there were strong amounts of folks turning up to watch in person to market in front of, to do, call it direct marketing. And also TV audiences were stout. I would say the lack of rapid sponsorship efforts The fact that we do not have a ton of big household name sponsors involved in sports car racing in the WEC or IMSA at the highest levels, if not pretty much any level, speaks to the fact that for folks to spend money on advertising their product, they have to believe they're going to be reaching a significant number of people. It's it's a really basic thing, which I know you understand, Right Turn Lover, and others do as well but if you don't have a lot of people that are awaiting to hear your message you're probably going to go find a different vehicle to reach them and <laughs> uh sadly sports car racing right now is not reaching the people in the grand, enough people in grandstands or through televised streaming whichever other methods it's a really simple thing you put enough people in front of advertisers, they'll want to get to them. You don't, they won't. Right now, we aren't. They aren't.
1: I think it's a it's a problem with an awful lot of uh, entities
0: just getting people. And it's not limited to, to sports cars.
1: No, no, just getting people off their asses and getting them to go somewhere rather than actually sit uh, uh, sit at home or go to a shopping mall is a, a massive issue for all sorts of kind of. Uh, mass audience events from you know from years uh, recently past, but uh, you're spot on. Um, next one, Peter Bester. In the wake of David Hein hansens withdrawal for the WEC and subsequent reasons for doing so, is it time for the FIA to reevaluate the requirements for AM drivers in GTE AM, such as making it mandatory that the driver is employed in motorsports?
0: Hmm. Did we get ah. into the uh, DHH topic last week? I, I will i not, admit not, not a lot. Calling.
1: No, I think, you know, But for those that are not, not aware, this is David, and it's not the first time David's mentioned this, um, his growing ire at the inability of the FI driver rankings to protect um, true rams such as himself. Mike Hedlin, to,
0: another one yeah, who is very yeah. vocal about this, who is like David. Successful in business, good at business, and able to participate in endurance racing, sprint racing, and sports cars grown disenfranchised by the fake silver, the professional driver parading by legitimate ranking. I don't mean they're legitimate silvers, but they have been legitimized as silvers by this arcane, driver rating system uh formed by the FIA IMSA here as well in the US has a system that is based on that but they allow themselves some wiggle room in it as well but something where a true non-professional a true enthusiast the the epitome of the gentleman or gentlewoman driver is just blown out of the water by another driver of identical driver rating but indeed is a professional who has possibly had a year a bad year or two or been downgraded from a gold uh, or platinum, who knows, and so that has been the premise of david 's disenfranchisement for many years, uh, Mike Headland as well, and we have this situation where, to your point peter we're losing some of those who are able to do this and help support teams and make racing more viable for folks in headland's case he's just become very choosy of where he spends his time and money and tends to go to the places where he feels there's a true pro-am dynamic being protected he's did a lot of winning last year uh in the whatever you want to call it american world challenge series this is a unique thing though right graham as to david i'm sorry to peter's question uh regarding david is it time for the FIA to reevaluate the requirements? It yeah. sure has yeah. been. It didn't <laughs> just start with. And this isn't nothing negative towards you, Peter. I'm just saying, should they? Yes. Should David's call out serve as a clarion call? Absolutely. Has this been the first time? The last time? Hell no. This has been going on since they implemented these silly ass driver ratings. So, it to me graham if you agree this is more a question of does the fia give a crap because it's an old topic and it doesn't seem to ever really strike the right balance
1: it's a it's a difficult one isn't it i mean there's all sorts of ways you could play with it i mean there is a question is david hyman hansen a silver in the new world order or is he a bronze should bronze be extended to encompass people with real ability? Should they be the people that uh, that the, the current bronzes aspire to be as good as? You know, you mentioned uh, the GT World Challenge America, uh, what it used to be, and that's another one that's lit the fire, isn't it? Just this last week, and I think Mike Headland has been saying so uh, with the Race's Edge announcement of a second Acura NSX with, from memory, Trent Hinman and Shelby yes. Blackstock. That, you know, this is. Remember, this is the series that got rid of the factory teams. Effectively trying to get rid of the pro drivers, and there you have two silver-ranked drivers who nobody in the right minds would describe as being anything other than professional.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, what should happen? What do we need to do? What can be done? Start again.
1: Start again. You know, the the this the, the problem at the moment. I think is based. Are the simple fact that the driver ranking system is a profit centre for the FIA. It's as simple as that, and they have no incentive to change it while they're still earning money from it. We've got the moment: platinum, gold, silver, bronze. It's a nonsense. Platinum, gold, uh, just it. That's just ridiculous. It's status led. Blah blah blah. It should be am aspiring pro, pro. That's it. It should be no more difficult than that. And then you rewrite the rules and you rewrite the driver eligibility and you rewrite the driving time uh, requirements to suit that new reality. That's what it should be. And ultimately, you've got a choice. You want to come into the sport. You've got to aspire to have a peer group. If your peer group at the moment that you aspire to be is no better than a bronze then the reality is you're going to be operating at a pretty low level um, for the entirety of your time within the sports. If, however, you want to aspire to be being as good as, as competitive as um, a David Heimer Hansen or a Mike Headland, then... I think that's the new bronze. I think that's exactly what it should be. And you should encourage those people to come in because, generally speaking, they are making a disproportionate contribution to the team's abilities to field those cars. They are generally, um, very often, uh, funding one of the pros in that car, if not the whole car. Uh, it's dead simple. You know, there's no reason why we shouldn't have aspiring pros or emerging pros. But the reality is they are driving the people who pay for this out of the sport.
0: Well, add in one quick thing I've never fully understood on the driver rating system and approach. So there's a variety of mechanisms. And we won't get into all of them, but there's a variety of mechanisms of, so you're a pro, haven't won a championship for X amount of years, you're downgraded, downgraded. You, are, you reach a certain age, and all of a sudden, you're now downgraded to a silver, call it, again, we're delineating between bronze and silver, amateur, and gold and platinum, pro. I've never understood, Graham, why there is not some sort of permanent tag associated with those who have received pro status, as a legacy, call it tattoo. There's a permanence to it. I realize that you, my, my not my brother Scott Pruitt, was you know giddy at the fact that it, at reaching whatever age fifty something, fifty six, he was downgraded to silver, and yet this guy is still faster than eighty percent of the people in a prototype in in anything, right? Um, you have some others who, again, were, have been full pros. Maybe they lost their ride, been out of the sport a little bit, farting around select rides. Therefore they haven't had a true championship representation, right? Here's where I finished running the full season in this category. So it gets a little bit hard to air quote classify, but we know they're pros. These are the, the sneaky silvers, the fake silvers never understood why the do we know who you are yes do we know why you are not being held in a permanent position as a pro yes because they've set up a system that says again due to lack of championship performance yada yada over x amount of years or age or who knows what all else you can get downgraded i don't care if you get downgraded within your realm of aptitude and profession, but crossing that threshold from, oh, Scott Pruitt, who is paid by the Lexus factory to this date. I realize he retired, but if he wanted to race tomorrow at Sebring, he would be classified as an air quote amateur driver. Are you effing kidding me? I don't care. I think the only caveat would be for a pro driver, Graham is If they have gotten old enough, or who knows if they've suffered some sort of injury that limits their ability to compete at a pro level on the race track, okay, maybe there's a special case or two. But the thing I don't understand, which I think might just eliminate this whole sneaky silver, fake silver, Mike Hedlund, David Hennemeyer Hansen problem it for them, is if you've been a pro, you're always going to be in the pro category maybe you might fall to the lowest designation here i am saying stupid things maybe there needs to be more than just two levels of pro and amateur again i don't know but the fact that anyone in a rating system would create something where a pro could be classified as an amateur for circumstances or aging it's just that's the underpinning of stupidity here where unless you've lost your talent, you're always a pro. And when you allow that to not be recognized in a rating system so that the Hennemeyer Hansons of the world flip you the bird and say, I'm out, this is ridiculous. Well,
1: I don't know why you, this has
0: never been acknowledged.
1: I'll I, give you another example of it. We almost saw uh, this year in Europe, and that was uh, a two-man squad in an lmp3 car uh they tested and i'm trying to recall the the young pro driver that was going to be cha- uh, sharing this car but i can tell you that the the less ranked driver of the two um because of the age bar having kind of hit and uh that driver's ranking having come down to a sufficient level was one and Pirot. <laughs> And I'm not kidding. Emmanuel Piro, by the way, who didn't finish off the podium at Le Mans between 1999 and 2007 and won the race five times, uh, six times if you include a class win. Um, the, the reality, I think, is it does need a solid um, rejigging now. And I think it is really quite simple. It is pro, it is am, and then there's those people in between who either a to become a full-time pro and or indeed uh, aspire to remain racing beyond the point at which their competitive career is generally finished on the way down and on the way up, if you like. Um, and if you want to be considered in that bracket and you are a gentleman driver, then you should have that opportunity to opt into that level. But I can't really see that most people would. I don't think that's going to drive terribly many uh, bronze drivers away from the sport as long as you're not blindingly stupid about the way that you um, you draft your regulations that you don't force those drivers into a position where they've got to drive for longer than would make them uncompetitive. There's ways and means in which you can do that in an intelligent way, and the best way of achieving that is do something which I'm afraid race organisations are terrible at, which is for the love of God sit down with your customers and ask them what they want. Please, rather than just drafting regulations that then sends a tidal wave of angst and despair through your paddocks, please sit down with them and ask them exactly what it is that's going to get them coming back and spending the six- and seven-figure sums, which these ladies and gentlemen do. That's it.
0: Yeah. You know, sorry, going to have to trigger it again. That was an unexpected use (laughs) Of the Bushu Hammer Emporium Soapbox, so let's roll the jingle. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone, Christoph Bushu's
1: Hammer Emporium.
0: All right, Graham, we're, let's grab one more hegeneral and then spend the last 10-ish minutes on fun and then say farewell. Uh, this comes from Richard Leach. Ah, I almost wanted to say Ricard Leets, but uh, we'll go with Richard Leach. How much of an impact are series worldwide anticipating from the coronavirus? Says that he sees the GT Open could have already uh, cancelled one winter test.
1: Uh, They have, and uh, just had news of the Super GT pre-system test Okuyama will take place behind closed doors. I'm aware of multiple series that at the moment are coming up with a plan B in terms of, you know, whether or not we're going to see restrictions. We've got a number of European nations uh, having announced that gatherings over a certain level uh, will be debarred. We've got the Geneva Motor Show being cancelled, etc., etc. I think we've got an emerging period here where the inevitability is we're going to see more and more cases confirmed. That will inevitably, through the Paris statistics, lead to more and more serious cases and sadly deaths uh, emerging uh is there correct panic about this there should be no panic uh is the correct concern about this absolutely there is uh does it ignore the fact that we've got wider health issues across the planet that uh, would benefit from the same kind of restrictions yes it does of course it does uh but are we going to have to see a solid response in the weeks to come yes we are and that is certainly going to impact on the lead-in to the major European season. Um, It's going to be, I think, a time of concern for the major race organisers. I've held off having those conversations, simply because I think the answer is going to be we're keeping it under review. Um, But I would be surprised if all of the major uh, organisers for the race series that we all hold dear weren't right now developing some form of plan B.
0: I know I've had a number of folks ask me, does the Indy 500 have a coronavirus action plan or contingency plan? And it's just something where I do my best to process this, but that race is three months away, two and a half, three months away. We have had one fatality in the U.S., I believe it happened yesterday due to the coronavirus. Is this a true global pandemic? I don't know. I don't think it's going to be. I mean, this is being described as a very, like, a flu of the worst order, one that could certainly be fatal. So I'm not underplaying this, not trying to say it is not something to be worried about. But the thing that I'm seeing, Graham, and I think this is, worth mentioning or adding separate from any contingency plans, whether it is WEC, IMSA, GT, this, whatever. Even if these series say we're fine, we're going to go ahead. I think the bigger issue we're going to face, having just seen that apparently the just terrible beer Corona, (laughs) they announced they've had a 38% drop in sales. Because of, or was it 38% of the people say they wouldn't? I forget what the number was, but the number 38 was used from folks saying they will not consume corona beer out of fears of the coronavirus here in the US. Just tells me that the human angle is the biggest problem we're going to face when it comes to motor racing and these events. So even though there might not be an issue whatsoever, as long as this remains a daily topic of of vast interest and presentation, I, I subscribe to the New York Times and see that they now have, as I read this morning, a daily coronavirus update email that I can get. <laughs> right? As long as this thing is, is just drummed up to this high level of a drama, even though at least here in the States... It's not a thing yet. If you held a major motor race tomorrow, I think you would see a significant downturn in attendance just due to the number of folks strictly afraid of them getting this virus, even though it hasn't become a thing yet. So I think that's going to end up being the issue, Graham. Will every series and whatnot have some sort of contingency? Probably Would the amount of rampant fear running around right now be the thing that even if the coronavirus is not an issue where you live or where a motor race is being held, could that be a thing that would lead folks to say, yeah, I'm not going? I think so. That's the thing that bums me out the most. Like, come on, man. If it's a real problem where you are, I get it. If it's not, wash your hands and live your life, I would say. I can't disagree, is the honest answer.
1: Um, I watched with amazement uh, when we were away, uh, Trudy with me in Malaysia, and uh, she was having a quiet afternoon. uh, One of the days I was actually at the circuit, came back and was listening to the tone of a U.S. cable network about this. And I have to say my response to it was exasperation, which is you are looking for people to blame here you're looking for a way to just stir this up to be something that it fundamentally isn't it means common sense response to a known outbreak uh you know, there are clear guidelines that that you know uh should and are followed in those circumstances and then let the public health authorities do their job It is not for the media to make us afraid of things. It is for the media to inform us of what we need to to know to keep ourselves as safe as we possibly can. But to make people afraid of things, it's just become, it's not a cottage industry anymore. It's, you know, it is what the media, the mass media just does. This is how they market themselves. And it is a a source of massive concern and exasperation
0: on that front. And let's, let's play our it. jingle. <laughs> 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 and once we're done with the jingle, let's roll into fun. Damn it, we're going to have fun. Hammers for you, hammers for me, hammers for everyone. Christoph Bush's
1: Hammer Emporium.
0: All right, and now we're ready to have a little bit of fun and say farewell All right, what am I going to do here? I'm going to find something fun here, perfect for you. And I hope you're getting hazard pay for having to stand next to this deplorable Scott. Is Alan McNish the only commentator, asks Lance Snyder, that needs to bring his own seat insert to the commentary booth so he can see the screens?
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) there. Hilarious thing here, though, is but bear in mind. So the the, the three of us, normally speaking, and by the way, uh, thank you very much indeed, Jim Roller um, and Duncan Vincent for stepping in while others of us were busy elsewhere for the WEC at Kota uh, last weekend. But it's it's not just that; it's not just the fact he's a very tiny man. It's the fact that sitting alongside him is Martin Haven, who is a very very tall man. And uh, we did have the hilarious moments um, at Shanghai, where Martin, using his height advantage, which he has uh, a vast amount of Raoul, um, to gaffer tape uh, Al's beloved Tunnock's biscuits to the ceiling of the um, of the of the of the booth in Shanghai, he just couldn't reach them. As simple as that. Uh, Al is it's how can I put this compact? Yes, I think compact is compact is the is the right description of it i like to see myself how can i put this as normal um then we've got um but it's a bit like that i think you see the the very typically british comedy sketch um that was done in the 60s talking about the class system the guy called ronnie corbett very short guy and a guy called john cleese i'm sure you're aware very tall guy and it was it was done beautifully look it up on youtube uh done beautifully to explain the class system You put the three of us together, and it looks like a staircase. It's quite remarkable, really. But uh, Alan is teeny weeny, brings with it some advantages. Uh, He can headbutt you in the kneecap if he needs to. Um, But I can confirm he does not have a seat insert. He just has a seat he brings with him, which
0: has extraordinary range. Wow. There we go. All right. Let's grab one or two more. Jacob Bame, you sent in one. Uh, more than once now on the, uh, twist canary, twist canary. Is that how we should twist canary? I'm not sure how we should pronounce that. that uh, maybe we just <laughs> added a new one to your list of words that we either make up unintentionally or one, like you mentioned here, myrtle which is one I've used for years. Um, can't open the link, unfortunately. So you're asked. So send this through yet again. And, uh, yeah, not sure how I failed this but uh anyways so would love to get to that so maybe it'll take a third time uh let's see What well jacob has jacob has one i just said jacob so add that jacob to the list you're <laughs> keeping please look this is you know this is real it's real uh i'll throw this i'll take this one because uh, it's and i can't i shouldn't say can't i can't mention names i don't want to Uh, Why don't we go with the last one here, Graham, from Jacob, saying last week, uh, Zaraki is meowing because he wants to be fed. Jesus, dude, you do this every day. He just stops everything, starts meowing. He doesn't care. He He doesn't doesn't care. But he also acts like I forget that he needs food every day. It's hilarious. (laughs) It's it's Groundhog's Day with cats. It's it's phenomenal. Uh, Jacob says... Yet uh, last week, he had a question. Uh, what the one might have been surprised that uh, he's wasn't asked before by a listener. He says, "Bouncing off that, what is your one inside baseball sports car story you've been always wanting to tell but never had a chance? For example, because nobody ever asked the right question."
1: Oh, that's a good one. That that comes back to my old stock in trade, by the way. Yes. I, you know the way I the way I used to actually um, teach my young colleagues how to do the job of being a government spokesman was it's this simple they can ask any question they like and you have to answer that question that is the job you tell the truth that is the job they'd laugh at it nowadays wouldn't you but that's what we used to do crazy however however you don't have to tell them the questions that they need to ask that's the difference. So, you know, it's not a matter of kind of keeping something secret. You can you, you'll answer whatever question they ask you, but you, you're you not obliged to kind of guide them in, a, in, the, in the way in which the questions they want to ask. God, there's so many of these, aren't there? There are so many things out there um, that it's a bit like the Scott Atherton, if you knew what I knew. Um, there's an awful lot of things that I know right now, and I'm sure an awful lot more that, you know, right now that would make excellent copy, uh, but for a variety of reasons, some of which are decorum, some of which are common sense, some of which are self-preservation, you don't come forward and say so. There are a number of things that emerged with the Le Mans entry list that's absolutely 100% I knew before
0: uh, they came out, but trying to think of one that's there. I'll throw – two come to mind quickly. One, I won't it. get into much here. Maybe I'll get into it in a future episode, but I'll just mention it because I am. I, I did mention. I I alluded to it in a response to a friend's post on Facebook um, about a restaurant. He's saying, "I oh, the last time I was at that restaurant seabring Sebring was with uh, Pruitt, you know, four or five years ago." And I just replied, "Yes," yeah, so I replied to that. So prior to having that dinner with my friend at the, I think it was the 2014-ish, 15, what we would used to formally call the Wheels Down Winter Test at Sebring. Before I had that dinner with my friend, was there primarily, I think, just for one day for that test. Not really to do a whole lot with the test. I was there, was covering some stuff, trying to do a little bit, but really was there because I'd been beckoned by the late Don Painos. And he asked me to come down to the test to sit down with him and have a very private meeting. And I can't get into the details of it because there were law, not involving me or the outlet that I was with, but uh, involving lawsuits and counter lawsuits and all kinds of crazy stuff but we'll just say that I will hopefully talk about this at some point in time in the future. And it was just one of those fascinating things where sitting in the room there at Chateau Alon, which he owned, I believe it still owned at the time. um, And uh, unfortunately no windows are cracked, but he's just, you know, puffing away on silk cut cigarettes the whole time. So that was a delight to try and breathe through, Uh, (laughs) but was sitting across from him and he wanted to spell out uh in very clear terms a lot of things that were misperceived a lot of negativity that had been sent his way in relation to a project that he was working on and it was just it was really fascinating to have someone say i trust you to come and sit with me and there was i don't believe that there was any kind of NDA or anything signed It was just a true come and sit. We are going to talk. We are going to try and get to the heart of the old matter here. And really fascinating to learn so many things that a tycoon like a Don Pano's I don't think would reveal to many, if anybody, other than his innermost circle on the payroll, all those who have signed NDAs that was that was cool i appreciated that and don and i always we had a, a really strong relationship from the moment we met but that i just really it, that meant something to me knowing that while it involved flying all the way across the country for one day uh it was still well worth that trip having been welcomed i guess farther into his inner circle i mean he shared a lot of things with me and i'm sure many other reporters Uh, that were off the record or hey this is the thing i'm working on don't talk about it now but uh this is you know the cool thing that we're doing this was just on a different level and it was just really cool to sit there and say all right i'm gonna open up the books to you here on this topic and it's involving stuff where it's like oh yeah I could never write about that. I could never print that because frankly, then I'm going to be <laughs> in court on the stand being, you know, involved in this somehow, but it was just, that part was really, really cool. Uh, I don't know if any of similar things have come to mind for you to Graham to throw in here as we look to close, but I do have another one I could throw in that just happened.
1: Go for it. I, I, I could tell you, so I, I, not dissimilar situations those moments where you're invited to effectively um have a window into someone else's world uh and be to be trusted with actually information that is extraordinarily sensitive whether or not that's of a corporate nature a personal nature they are the ones that make the difference it is good to be trusted it's good to feel as if you can make those determinations as to what stays private, what, um, you know, remains as uh, background knowledge uh, so that you can understand the context of an emerging situation, and that you're not just going to go and throw it at the page or throw it at the internet, uh, which, you know, all too often, I'm afraid, is, is the modern disease, which is, I know, therefore, I've got to go with that before someone else does. I try not to get too possessed by that, to be absolutely honest with you. It's, you know it, I think, devalues the, the whole marketplace in which we operate uh, when people do that. But uh, but yeah, um, not dissimilar situations and with some names that would be remarkably familiar to our listeners. What's your other example,
0: MP? Christoph Bouchou, I think, is who you're talking right. about here. Uh, yeah, he well, tells, tells me everything. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll just close on this because we're well into overtime. Uh, this is something that just happened... Most recently, I got a note, I don't know, maybe a month ago saying, Hey, this very well known, important figurehead in the sport would love to catch up with you. To which I said, Great, let's do that. Arranged in advance. Some poop hit the fan between that invitation and the phone call, and was kind of expecting to get a follow up. Hey, so and so would still love to talk with you, still would love to do an interview. But taking into account the poop that just hit the fan. Uh, We're going to punt. We're going to push this back a little while. Let the waters calm a bit. To my surprise, that did not happen. The opposite. 45 minutes before the long prearranged call, got an email. All ready to speak in 45 minutes? Sure, okay. Uh, I really was not expecting that. Do the call. During the call, one of the folks involved on the call on the other end said, uh, before, um, so there are some things that might be off the record that you guys get into, um, to which I said that usually happens. So why don't you do this for me? I'll just ask my questions as I normally do. And if you are going off the record, do as is fairly normal, say, Hey, this part's off the record or at the end of it, which I don't like this style. Oh, by the way, that was off the record. But, in some way, during this call, which we're going to record because want to make can't usually can't type as quickly as you're having a, a conversation dancing back and forth at least for me,'m going to record this, make sure it's good uh, and transcribe from there. but flag any off the record moments, conversations held, half hourish, maybe a little bit longer, not once was off the record mentioned not once nor did anything really stand out at the end of the call there was a comment made ah it did not sound like there's anything off the record there great not a problem thanks for the call that was great yada yada five minutes later get a phone call from the other person who is on the call i had stepped out to do something for a moment come back find that apparently another call had been made so two rapid succession phone calls and I listen to the voicemail or see the transcription of the voicemail. I'm like, okay, let me call back. And the other person who was on the call said, "I just want to make sure that you're going to send that over for uh, for us to to listen through um, or, or read through to see if there's anything that was off the record." And again, I'm thinking, man i know at the beginning of the call i said if there was kind of say something and then during i didn't hear anything and then at the end you said i didn't hear anything why am i getting this call like too rapid succession hey so are you still sending that through for us to you know check i should have known graham something was amiss. i said yeah i said i would i still will it's a courtesy but yeah i will Also, just said, hey, if there's anything else that we spoke on that needs any clarity added, you know, uh, just let me know and, you know, we'll try and make sure that what the finished product is clear, but that's all. So, courtesy being extended to look through, listen through, note any off-the-record items that no one thought existed, and if there's any phrasing, got it. Seven-hour passes, seven hours pass after sending over the written transcript and after checking in multiple times hey kind of need to get this going hey where uh where is this at really this was supposed to be just a quick breeze based on what we discussed right didn't think there's anything in there i believe graham off the top of my head the transcription of this interview subject's words was i don't know something in the range of 2,000-ish words, what I got back was about 1,300. (laughs) I mean, we damn near knocked half of the interview out. And I'm going, man, um, for something we all agreed, there really wasn't anything off the record discussed. Man, that, you know thank you ms word and your word count function because um, man it went from long to short and come to hear oh well the interview subject was uncomfortable with this and then asked if you could delete that question altogether and if you could this and if you could that and this here and the phrasing of such and so and all of a sudden this turns into a you know what this is pardon my french bullshit what i agreed to was in the spirit of colleagues trying to help one another making sure that intense times that okay could have been something we missed that we forgot to flag is off the record this instead has turned into a fundamental altering of everything taking grand license to believe that because you've asked and I've offered. Actually, I think I was the one who said, hey, I don't mind you taking a look to see if there's anything off the record. That's fine. Don't make that offer very often, but nonetheless was blown away, Graham, that what I got back was basically a fully edited, optimized piece that stripped out any and everything that would have made it readable any and everything that would have been interesting it was it took something that was rich and turned it into a placebo and that was never the agreement and so q f- attempted phone calls back to say hey no that's not what we agreed to uh no response so just sent uh made some other calls internally and said hey uh there's some really wacky stuff going down here, and I just want to let you know I'm about to fire off an email that is not very pleasant, uh, but it's necessary because we're either not being respected or, uh, again, I'm not sure what, but this is overstepping bounds by such a far, far measure that a statement needs to be sent here, which which it was, and then spent what should have been a very quick thing, brother, of the interview, sure, take a quick look at the transcription, flag anything for discussion and then we'll go from there and seven plus hours later get back something that turned out it had been sent through the interview subject and in the email i got back was approved by that person for use to which i said what the f are you talking about this this person is not my editor and so what should have been very quick and easy, and done, turned into two days, three days of back and forth, and all kinds of nonsense, and it finally went up. I didn't give a flying fart about it by that point. I had actually tried to pass it off and say, great, whatever you guys agree to, you agree to, you work with it. I I have no interest in doing it. It was eventually sent back my way, uh, wrote it up, Again, uh, lost any interest in it. Also lost a ton of respect for uh, the people involved on the other end of the phone. So uh, I wish I could say more. I won't. But, yeah, this is just a recent one where I don't think anyone would have a reason to ask about it, Jacob. But it's one of those things where you go, wow, so you you think that's how things get done? You think people just lay down and let you in whatever position you're in believe that, oh, well, They've taken control of this. You invited me. You reached out to me asking if to have this conversation and interview out of courtesy. I offered to let you look through the person's words, knowing that you're going through some turmoil. You want to turn it into this? Yeah. Lesson learned on my part that uh, that will never happen again. As they were informed, this will never happen again. Ever. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. So if we ever do an interview again, whatever you say, it's there's no off the record ever, ever, ever. You're never seeing anything that I write before it's published ever, ever, uh, because you took that ability away through your actions. So I realize all this stuff is meaningless in the scope of the world, <laughs> but at least from a professional standpoint, I was... Seething for days, and there you go. We're ending on a happy note. Graham Goodwin, thank you for your time. <laughs> I hope <laughs> folks like your new headset. By the way, for those who complained hopefully, about hopefully, the sir. the nostril blasts, I hope you've noticed there aren't any. Um, uh, fingers crossed. I don't know what's going to happen with the headset that I bought for you that I was going to modify to make sure it never happened because you've solved it on your own. So I probably should have asked first. There, uh, I am Marshall Pruitt. That is Graham Goodwin. We do say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, and my cat Rocky, who wants me to feed him right now. Thank you to you for your great questions. Please send in the ones we did not get to. We'll speak to you next week.